Uh, hi everyone, um, my name is Henry. I'm a third year commerce student and I'm one of the leaders in, uh, in the economics faculty. Um, yep, yeah, uh, as you've all heard before, this is Paul. Um, Paul, it's a pleasure to have you here at the EU. Um, now, I think this is true, but you studied a Bachelor of Arts in Accounting. That's right. Um, yeah, that's what I thought too, at first. Um, <laughs> at the University of Adelaide. Uh, yes. Um, you're an Aussie Rules uh, fan, and you support the Crows. Yes. Uh, is anybody else here ever even heard of Aussie Rules? <laughs> All right, hey. Yeah. Yep, so the first question I'm going to ask you, and I think this is the most important one, uh, will the Crows be able to take the Premiership away from Sydney this year? Well, somebody will. I'm hoping it's the correct. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and now, Paul, you're a forensic accountant, and that's led you to uh, work in many different countries. Um, now, I'm guessing you don't wear a lab coat, and you don't carry an oversized kit bag uh, everywhere you go. Um, so could you please uh, tell us, for all of us here who don't know, uh, briefly what forensic accounting is? Um, and how you developed a passion for it. Right. Forensic accounting is probably the only really exciting field of accounting. So <laughs> those of you who who started studying accounting and, and are doing debits and credits, well, it gets better, all right? But unfortunately, you have to learn the debits and credits first. Forensic accounting covers broadly two areas. One area is the investigation of financial uh, crimes, uh, financial investigation generally, and... Uh, that can uh, lead to uh, investigation of fraudsters or investigation of corporate collapses. That's one side of forensic accounting. The other side of forensic accounting is expert evidence generally before the courts. So uh, in commercial disputes, wherever uh, expert uh, knowledge of accounting is required, giving evidence, being cross-examined for a living, uh, that's basically what I've been doing for the last few years is, is being cross-examined for a living and I actually have enjoyed that. I've recently stopped doing it for other reasons. I'll go into it a little later. Um, but that's been where my, uh, my uh, enjoyment has been in work. Uh, fantastic. Um, so you've worked in many countries overseas as well. Um, any highlights or any, any really big uh, cases that you've worked on? Well, I spent five years working in, uh, in Indonesia from 92 to 97 during a, a period when uh, Asian economies were booming. Uh, just a month or two after we left Indonesia and came to Sydney, the Indonesian economy and the Thai economy and a few others collapsed, but uh, I can assure you the two weren't related. Uh, I did, uh, I had a number of jobs. I suppose the, the biggest job I've done in my career and the one that I doubt I will do anything like again was the investigation in 1999 of the then president of Indonesia. Uh, this required us to come in from outside investigate the alleged uh, misappropriation of about 70 million US dollars and the use of those funds to run his re-election campaign. This was President Habibi who'd succeeded President Suharto and uh, we had uh, armed guards with machine guns following us around and uh, shady characters with their arms inside their coats who were supposedly protecting us and, uh, and I had to go back and testify before the Indonesian parliament, you know, uh, simultaneous translation looking like we're in the UN uh, so that, that's probably one of the more unusual jobs that I've done as a forensic accountant. Um, everything gets pretty boring after that. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Now, it sounds like you're quite a busy man. Um, 
you've also got a wife, uh, Lee, who's with us here today. Uh, welcome to you too. Um, two children, uh, but yet you still find time uh, for your hobbies, um, such as gardening and furniture carpentry. Um, how have you been able to balance family and home life um, with having such a successful career? I, I just realised as you asked that question, because Henry had previously asked me what sort of what I did to relax, how, how old that makes me feel among you. <laughs> All right, I've just admitted to being to enjoying gardening. <laughs> right. Get a life, I hear you all thinking. <laughs> well, actually, it, it, it's actually good exercise. I quite enjoy it. And we have a big garden, and it saves paying the gardener extra to come every day. Um, and uh, I do enjoy, uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but I enjoy doing things for relaxation that are actually the opposite of what I do in the office. So I've got to spend 12 hours in the office uh, straining the brain on, on financial investigation and writing expert opinions, then when I'm at home or relaxing, I want to do the opposite of that, um, get some tools in my hands and make things. And you don't have to be good at it, just completely different from what I do during the day. And, uh, and it can be fitted in uh, if you sacrifice other things like partying and going to the pub or whatever else people 25 years younger than me do, then you can fit in these other things. And it's a matter of choice. It's a deliberate choice to, for example, not play golf. If I did that, it would take five hours on a weekend, whereas I'd much rather spend that five hours at home or with family doing other things. So it's really a choice. Uh, you hear about work-life balance. Work-life balance uh, is a hot topic at the moment in, uh, in business. Um, a lot of what you hear about it is rubbish because essentially work-life balance is a choice. You choose what you do. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Um, so... Uh, Paul, you're a Christian, and uh, you've been a Christian for quite a while now, and you've also been an accountant for a long time as well, um, 30 years, I believe. Um, how do the two uh, work together, and how does uh, being a Christian uh, affect the way that uh, you do business and the way that you work? I think there's, there's a big difference in the way I view what I do compared to how a non-Christian would view doing the same thing. And uh, we, we'd be kidding ourselves, those of us who are Christians, if we thought that everything we did somehow looked different to things that non-Christians do. So I, I have a, a lot of good friends who do forensic accounting work and, and they're honest and reliable and hard-working and, and often it's pretty hard to tell the difference. What I can say is that having worked in that particular field and, and over 30 years in a lot of other accounting fields, that... I felt very comfortable doing financial investigative work and expert opinions because in that particular field there's a very heavy emphasis on integrity and truth and right. Um, that is, one has, for example, in giving expert opinion to the court, a duty to the court to be truthful, to be um, explaining things in a manner that is helpful for the administration of justice, whether it's a criminal or civil matter. And, and therefore that's immediately congruent with the kind of um, beliefs with which I've grown up and that are instilled in me um, that are essential uh, to my Christian lifestyle. So um, it would be hard, for example, and I've not been in the position, if instead of investigating corporate collapses, I was on the other side being pressured to process inappropriate accounting entries that might conceal the parlous financial condition of a company. In those circumstances, obviously, I'd be greatly challenged. I, I expect I couldn't continue in that role. So I've been fortunate for the last 10 years or so while I've been involved in forensic accounting that, that actually it caters very well to someone who's a Christian and, and passionate about truth and integrity. Uh, fantastic. Um, 
thanks for that, Paul. Um, I'll just hand over the time to you now. Thank you. Um, it's a good 20-odd years since I last uh, stood at this end of a lecture theatre and, and talked to students. My last occasion was uh, in the mid-80s delivering a lecture on business valuation. And, uh, and all the students look just like you uh, because fashion cycles have gone back to where they were in the 1980s. <laughs> and uh, the only difference was that uh, I was obviously 20 years younger and therefore the same generation almost as those to whom I was speaking, whereas today I, I feel like generation X, Y and possibly Z all passed by in between us. But even though you may by and large be very youthful compared to uh, my 40-something, um, I'd like to ask you a bit to, to, to think about the things that have so far in your life have been formative events. That is, why are you the way you are? Now, I can give you a few of mine. Uh, I can think of um, the, the kind of people that mentored me uh, when I was a young accountant. I started as a part-time student at 17. And, uh, and I can think of the people that, because of the way they acted, uh, caused me to act in a certain way. I know some of my mannerisms today came from partners in accounting firms between 25 and 30 years ago. And it's kind of frightening to realise that I might be causing the same thing in the graduates who join PricewaterhouseCoopers today. So formative events can be particular individual. They can be particular jobs that I do. Um, I mentioned an investigation in Indonesia that I did. That was a formative event because I saw large-scale international standard corruption at play and it caused me to do a lot of thinking about what was going on in that event. Or another one more recently, uh, I've spent uh, a number of years testifying in a high-profile matter uh, in court and uh, I got uh, cross-examined for, for 18 days um, I had several thousand questions put to me. Some of them weren't terribly friendly and, and my parentage was sort of questions in court. And those sorts of uh, pressures are formative events because I start to question who I am and, gee, am I right or not? I mean, did I make a mistake here? Did I get the whole approach wrong in what I was doing? But they caused me to question who I am. These things are formative events. We all have them. One of the formative events was actually quite a small one. In uh, Indonesia in the mid-90s, my staff brought me a brown paper bag. Now, a brown paper bag is something you put your lunch in. It's also a euphemism for a bribe. And they brought me the brown paper bag, which had money in it, and they handed it to me and made it my problem. And they said our client, or the target of our, our uh, acquisition due diligence, it was an investigation to determine if someone's going to buy the company, our client has handed us this brown paper bag. What do we do with it? Now... It's fine when you live in Australia and you work in organisations that are substantially ethical and substantially operate according to your principles to have lots of idealistic views about corruption, about the way organisations should be run, about their ethics, about their principles, about their culture. It's when you get a brown paper bag with some money in it and somebody's expecting that in exchange for that you will do something for them that's probably inappropriate, otherwise they wouldn't need to give it to you. It's when that situation arises that you have a formative event. You have to face the thing. It's no longer a theory. It's no longer an ideal. 
So I'm not telling you as young students that you need to abandon ideals, far from it. What I'm suggesting is that there are formative events in your life where your ideals are challenged and you have to work out where you're going to go and how you're going to deal with it. So today I'm speaking to you as Paul Carter, 40-something chartered accountant, uh, and I don't really claim to have expertise in terribly much. I do claim to have some life experiences and to have a faith in God, and I'm going to tell you about those things. So let's get into it. I want to start in what might appear to be a kind of dumb place. What's the point of business? right? And then I'm going to talk about ethics, what are they for? And these questions are probably not exactly the way you would approach it. That is, you normally wouldn't ask what the point is first, and then you normally wouldn't say what are ethics for. You'd ask what they are and what standards should be set. I want to talk about high-performance culture. I want to talk about the Bible. High-performance culture, by the way, is, uh, is the latest in thing into the, into, in uh, modern business, addressing how we go about forming the culture of modern organisations. I want to talk about the Bible and how it's relevant to these things, and I want to challenge you talking about what I regard to be the best way. And I'm going to look at... Uh, sorry, I just need to go back one because I skipped one there. My reference sources, various websites. Uh, this, is, this is all very... Um, much so that I don't get accused of plagiarism or uh, get caught up in any modern approach to writing speeches without proper recognition for where I got the information. Uh, the Bible, uh, various authors and life experiences. So they're my reference sources. Let's see where they take us. Business, what is the point? Hmm. I don't know uh, how many of you are here because you are idealistic and want to obtain a degree in something useful. I'm assuming that's economics as opposed to arts. Um, <laughs> my wife, of course, now won't cook any dinner because she has an arts degree. And, and I have an arts degree, but it, it is in accounting. Um, but <laughs> that makes it fine. Uh, <laughs> arguably, a, a successful business needs to do these things. Now, you, you can fight with me over the list. Uh, but I'd, I'd like you to kind of accept this list for the moment, and it's probably a better list than it first looks, because I, I borrowed it off somebody who, who thought about it. Um, <laughs> arguably, a successful business should, first of all, make a profit, right? Because that's a short-term thing, but if you don't, you're going to run out of money sooner or later. We hope that it's going to pay wages, good wages, adequate wages, however you define that, it's a relative thing, good prospects and pleasant working conditions for its people. We hope it will invest for the long term, because if it doesn't, it won't be in business for the long term, because nothing stays around these days very long. We hope it's going to be able to, to repay those people who've invested in it, either give them their capital back uh, or give them dividends along the way. We hope it'll pay its taxes, because we're hoping it's kind of an ethical business. So we've immediately made an assumption there. And we hope it'll serve the public. So not every business is going to fit that definition um, strictly, but they seem to me to be fair requirements for businesses. Now, you might change the order of priority from what I might say. It may be that you look at this and say, well, I'm here to get a degree. I want it in a hurry. I'm getting a job at uh, PwC because I hear they pay big bucks for good graduates. Uh, and that's if MacBank hasn't already got you. 
and you're going to climb the corporate ladder, you're going to make bundles of money, and you're going to retire at 45. And as you can see, I already failed because I'm over 45. <laughs> you probably, in that case, would put profits first. Right? You'd put the profits first, and you put paying taxes near the bottom. And you won't be alone in that. that, that that's a, that's a, a caricature, but I think it's a fair caricature. Um, on the other hand, you may be here because you're seeing opportunities for service. That you're going to get yourself qualified and you're going to, going to go out there and you're going to devote yourself to some cause. In that case, you might even see profits as inconsistent with your objectives and you might uh, put that last and service to the public first. But at this point, because you know I'm a Christian, uh, you might expect me to tell you how you might prioritise those objectives according to what Jesus says in the Bible. And I'm not going to do that, partly because that's a different subject to my topic today, and partly because to assert that Christians might run their businesses according to a different, better prioritisation compared to non-Christians is not only arrogant, but it's wrong. That is, if you look at typical businesses out there, I define you to tell me, absent some little fish sign or other statement, which ones are run by Christians and which ones aren't. Right? Consider me too as, as one partner among 400 and something of my closest friends at PwC in Australia. There's only one PwC business. I, I can't run that business according to exactly what I want to do. I have a whole bunch of other people I work with. Yet I'm comfortable working within that business. It doesn't offend my morals and scruples, the things I believe according to my Christian faith. But the majority, the other 400, aren't terribly worried about my Christian faith and they aren't really focused on how they think God might run that business or want that business to be run. So what we've got to say is these business objectives, they're, they're pretty universal and they're not that different between Christians and non-Christians. So let's move on, see if we can find where differences might arise. What about ethics? Now, that might be a little bit small print, although because you're young, your eyes might work. But um, <laughs> I put in blue the bits I wanted to focus on. We have two broad approaches we can take once we're in business. We could put our own interests first and uh, we could comply with as few laws as necessary and, uh, and adopt business practices that are just enough to keep us out of trouble and stop the government shutting us down. That, that's sort of one extreme, perhaps, short of total illegality. And alternatively, we could operate according to a accepted business ethics. And how would that be different from the first alternative? Surprisingly, it's a harder question to answer than you might think. Now, I've got a couple of defini definitions here of ethics. And they usually refer to the moral principles, the things that enable us to tell what is right and proper, right and proper, what is, what is right from wrong. I think that's what they say there. Human actions and proposals may be judged good or bad or right or wrong what ought to be done, what ought not to be done. Very practical sort of thing in business. The practical situations a business faces, what should and shouldn't they do. Now, I know what I think is right and wrong. And uh, I'm wondering, though, whether my categorisation would be the same as yours. Now, I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up, 
Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about, though. And this is important as we go along a journey of trying to work out how to excel at business Christian style. Let's have a look at making a profit, which was in the business objectives earlier. All right? We might agree that making a profit is right and proper, but when does making a profit become profiteering? So we mightn't agree on that. We might agree that paying taxes is right as a principle, but when does legal avoidance of paying taxes become evasion? When, when is it okay to structure your affairs to pay less tax rather than some other amount of tax? Now, it, these things might be legal, but are they good? They might be right, but do they build us up or tear us down in terms of our moral fibre? See, this is a, a problem that's at the heart of our society today. It's relativism in ethics. Now, because I'm a Christian, and Jesus says a lot about the things in the Bible about our standards of behaviour, including in business, you might expect me to tell you how Christian ethics will be different from non-Christian ethics. And I'm not going to do that. Well, because that's a topic for another day, and because to assert that Christians always might run their businesses according to a different set of ethics because they're Christians compared to non-Christians is, again, not only arrogant but wrong. Right? You can't actually spot the Christian versus non-Christian business. I'm not talking about the extremes. But that's not where, when we're talking about ethics in business, we're going to really get to the point of what the Bible has to say. Let's have a little bit more of a delve into ethics in business. And I created this list by going to a few corporate websites and having a look at a few codes of conduct, which you can see. Interest in business ethics waxes and wanes. All right. Back in the 80s, some of you were born... Actually, it's a risk. No, no, actually, some of you were born in the 80s. There was this greed is good bit. You can see it in old films made back then. Um, guys in braces. Um, what's his name? Forget the name of the movie. Wall Street kind of thing. Um, there's a greed is good phenomena. And it provoked a backlash. And businesses navel-gazed around the world and said, we have been bad. Let's do better. And in Australia, you could, you could see it. It was the end of the 80s with um, a certain gentleman who skipped to Mallorca and a guy who built a yacht and won a yacht race and ended up in jail. Um, bombs, case, others. And, and that, there was a backlash. People got moral. They created ethics statements and codes of conduct. In the noughties, around 2001, it all happened again. About 12, 13, 14 years later, Enron collapsed, Worldcom collapsed, HIH collapsed, OneTel collapsed. Mm. A new round of ethical deliberations has followed. So today, ethics are back in fashion. If you go to a website of a large company today, you will find codes of conduct, you will find statements of their ethics, find statements of their business practices, all well and good. Typically, they'll cover the material that's on the slide. They'll, they'll talk about their social responsibilities. And they'll talk about how they don't discriminate or price fix or 
accept bribes or pay bribes or adopt creative accounting. All these things will be there. I'll say it for a third time. I doubt you'll discern any difference in the ethics statements of companies run by prominent Christians. Uh, Woolworths, for example, run by Roger Corbett, who's uh, an evangelical Christian, compared to large companies run by non-Christians. Uh, you might look at BHP Billiton's ethics statements. So let's just keep digging because this is, if there's no difference in the way Christians look at things and non-Christians look at things, then I'm kind of going to confuse you all as to why you've bothered turning up today. Ethics in business. Well, I had to throw this one in because it's from the PricewaterhouseCoopers website and uh, although the firm hasn't commissioned me to come and talk, those of you thinking of joining Deloitte should think again. Um, in fact, you'll find a very similar statement on Deloitte's, on EY, on KPMG and on every other large or small firm's website about their ethics in business. And there's a heavy emphasis on the desirable qualities of integrity, professionalism, respect for each other, good citizenship, ethical decision making. Gee, it sounds good. That's the sort of organisation you want to work for. They do the right thing. Now, that's not a Christian statement. It's not a statement from the Bible. It's not a statement from any religious writings, although within firms these days, our ethics statements do approach the status of a religious code. But it's talking about things that are right and honourable. And I could have picked any of the rival firms, any of the law firms. They're all saying things that are right and honourable. So what I've done so far is I've talked you through what it means to be in business. Very briefly, uh, you may have spent many lectures in front of lecturers giving you much deeper philosophy than I've talked about on that. And I've talked a little bit about ethics in business. And as I said, that's a bit of... That's, the flavour of the month at the moment. And I've set the scene now for a discussion on something called high-performance culture. The cultural approach to business is very widely promulgated at the moment. And I want to look at what a business culture is. Now, a culture is a pattern of basic assumptions. You can read the rest for yourself as I talk. It's the sum total of ways of living that have been built up. It's transmitted from one generation to the next. In business, that means every three years it moves on to the new generation. And I want you to think about for the moment the difference between these things. Business objectives, ethics, and business culture. There are three different things there. The culture is an environment. It's the way the organisation collectively thinks habitually. It's where people jump to when problems arise. They're relying on the accumulated history of that organisation. It has a huge effect on the outcomes of the organisation. You pull a lever, the culture determine what determines what happens. Now, we could go into all sorts of fancy science on this. We could talk about amygdala hijacks. An amygdala, a little bit at the back of your brain, when it gets twigged, it does things automatically before you even think of them. It's a bit like a culture. It's the environment in which you are caused to think. So an amygdala hijack is when my brain snaps because somebody says the one thing that I can't handle and I crack up. Or it's the thing that means that you jump when you hear a rustle in the grass, but only in summer, never in winter. Right? Because your, your brain doesn't react to the rustle in the grass consciously. It reacts subconsciously. So some things are automatic. Cultures are like that. 
Think about an accounting firm. I don't know if any of you are ever going to join one, but if you are, you eventually make partner there, you'll hear about profit allocations, right? Because they stir people up. You know, who gets which piece of the pie? Now, suppose that in Firm X, uh, obviously not PwC, they decide that profit allocations in future are going to be totally discretionary according to the assessment of a small team of senior partners. So this is announced to you, the partnership. How are you going to react? How you react depends upon your culture. So if we have a culture of trust, absolute trust, and you know that that bunch of senior partners are, A, very clever people, who know exactly how you've all contributed to the organisation over the past year, and B, extremely fair people, then your reaction may be very muted. You may go, oh, that sounds fair enough. We've got this bunch of really smart, really fair people making this decision. On the other hand, if your culture is one of distrust, if your culture is one of ambition, of striving to get ahead, of striving to be the best you can be and don't worry about the rest of them, then you're probably not going to trust this small group of people with a little black box sitting in a room working out how much of the profits you're going to get. You want a predetermined formula so that you can tweak the right lever to get your best result. So the culture actually determines what happens, how people react. A culture of mistrust destroys teamwork. A culture of selfish ambition will promote unhealthy competition. A culture of selfless sharing will promote knowledge sharing and creativity and new ideas. Now, at this point, because I'm a Christian and... Uh, and Jesus says a lot in the Bible about the ways in which we live together, you might expect me to tell you how a Christian culture will be different from a non-Christian one. And I'm going to. But not just yet. Not until we finish this journey into something called high-performance culture. What is it? High-performance culture is being used as the tool to develop the right, I'll put that in, in inverted commas, right, culture in organisations today. And it does a whole bunch of things. That is, the idea is that we learn, relearn how to communicate with each other. How to raise a difficult issue with somebody if they've offended me. How I should go to them and say, look, when you said this, I felt this. It's touchy-feely there, the business, but We've, we've dis we discuss trust and how we trust in different ways. In fact, four different kinds of trust. I was charged with learning all about that and trying to teach my colleagues about the different ways we trust. So that's, I'm an expert on trust. Clearing the air of disputes, we discussed that one. Learning how to communicate favoured forms of behaviour. So it's, it's like we take people back to before they got messed up by all this non-idealistic business behaviour and we get them to relearn the idealism they had when they were uh, pre-employment. Probably even pre-university. We have zero tolerance for people who won't comply with the idea that they've got to change their behaviour. We put a lot of emphasis into coaching and mentoring and, and really forming good relationships with the people with whom we work. And I'm a great supporter of this. I don't think there's anything on there where you'd go, well, no, that's an inappropriate thing in business. That's not the kind of culture we want. You'd look at that and you'd go, well, actually, committing to transformations in personal behaviour has got to be pretty good. No more of the boss coming in and going, this is a pile of rubbish, I want it fixed, I don't want it fixed now. Well, not that I ever said it that way, but I understand others might have said it that way. 
So what we're talking about here is the efforts of businesses, and, and I could list dozens of businesses for you. You go through the web, you'll find them all because their culture statements talk about high-performance culture. I could list dozens of them, and that's what they're trying to do. So this is the mechanics. And why business would want it and sort of the feel of what it is, I've pulled up these statements, which are directly from the web except for the blue highlighting, which is me picking the words out. So NASA, right, so NASA's into this. And they say on their website about high-performance culture, good project cultures lead to high performance and satisfaction and bear ones to failure and turnover. Already you have the hint here. Business wants to be into this because it works. We can go to Bain Consulting and we see things like passion, giving their best, inspiring loyalty, advocacy, positive, generates commitment, goes the extra mile. Oh boy, these are good things if you're an employer and you want good stuff out of your employees. You do some of this HPC stuff and this is what happens. And that sounds like I'm being sarcastic, but I'm not. It works. We could go to Deloitte. Anyone here silly enough to... Sorry, anyone actually <laughs> gone for an interview? There? Oh, Henry! No? Yeah. Who? Yes! <laughs> right. And Deloitte, like PwC, like EY, like uh, Alan's Arthur Robinson, the law firm, various others, we've all been at this. It's a, Some say it's a soft thing or strictly a human resources thing. Because if you say it's HR or human capital, among bunches of accountants especially, it usually just gets dismissed immediately. Because it's like soft, touchy-feely stuff and we don't want that. But actually, to everybody's surprise, we found how it's actually really good to go to the office where you're trusting your colleagues or to go to the office and have a good relationship with the people that you're working with. And so what we found is that it, it really helps getting your ethical messages across and with hiring people because you don't want to join an organisation that spends all its time squabbling. You want an organisation where people actually enjoy being there and they're nice to each other. It's kind of friendly. Now, American Express, I've, I've picked four very different organisations here. They get straight to the point. It avoids expensive turnover and ultimately enhances the bottom line. Boy, that warms every accountant's little heart. <laughs> and the last bit is the bit that I want you to think about as we move on. I feel valued. The thing that matters most, I feel valued. So from the employee's perspective, we have in a system to achieve their full potential. Anyone here doesn't really want to achieve their full potential? Right, you've got to be brain dead if you're disagreeing with the philosophy here. So that's unfair. Someone here may disagree with the philosophy, and I'm happy if you do. It builds team spirit. Most people like to be part of a functioning team. A few individuals out there may not. It makes employees feel valued. Very few, very few people don't want to feel valued. It brings personal satisfaction because actually you do enjoy the working environment better. And it creates passion. And most people, even accountants... Have passion. From the employer's perspective, it, A, inspires loyalty. It reduces turnover. The estimated cost of turnover in large firms is somewhere between $50,000 and $100,000 cost every time somebody leaves. Right? So reducing turnover is really good for the bottom line. Your employees want to give their best. 
It does help in fueling growth because in a tight labour market, if you're keeping your people, that's good. It helps facilitate change because happy people, satisfied people, trusting people don't react so adversely when change arises. When you're told your part of the business is no longer viable in today's market, we need to look at something else. It helps employees do the right thing. So it's a big win-win. So what's the problem? Let me tell you. Usual business objectives are not inherently bad. Right? We've been through those. And high-minded ethics in business are commendable. Anyone want to argue with the idea that it's good to have some strong ethical considerations in a firm? No, can't argue with that one. The values expressed in the typical code of conduct are usually right and proper. Right? People are saying good things. They're saying we want to get things right. We want to be honest. We want to act with corporate integrity. And an emphasis on a positive culture is praiseworthy. That's good. And high-performance culture, and I genuinely believe it, I've been part of it now for four years in terms of my own organisation, is a fantastic approach. It's really trying to do the right thing in a secular business environment. And then I've ruined all of it and put a big butt in bold print. Because if you're going to have a, a culture and you're going to try and change people to act the way that we've identified, and I say HPC, high performance culture, is the right way to do it, what, what am I going to talk about for the rest of it and this talk today and, and what's it got to do with the Bible? Well, HPC can be likened to a Porsche with a four-cylinder engine. It looks fantastic, those of you who like Porsches. It feels comfortable. Uh, I understand the back seat's not so good, but the front seat of the Porsche is good. It promises much, because, uh, right, a car that looks like that has to be fast, but it doesn't quite deliver, because something's not quite right. So let's just look at the common characteristics of, of these new cultural approaches that we're taking. They're based on rules. They're enforced by the threat of penalty. I said before, no cultural terrorists, right? If you want to be part of this organisation, this is where we are going and you must go there. It has a high impact at first, but then dies back. Every new thing has an initial impact. High-performance culture has real initial impact. But then it gets harder as people lose their enthusiasm. It requires people to act selflessly. Now, that's actually contrary to their inherent natures. So we're saying to you, oh, hey, students, uh, from now on, no more feeling ambitious. Is, is that OK with all of you? And um, We'll just declare it so. And, and we're going to live collectively as a group of students without being ambitious anymore. Just, just doesn't... I'm not sure if that's going to work. It, it offers the hope, but some of it's going to be unfulfilled because it requires a transformation rather than a mere change. But it doesn't offer any power to achieve it. So, HPC in the Bible. If I wasn't here today, I apart from the fact that I had a heart attack three weeks ago and I'm actually off work at the moment, 
um, which has nothing to do with forensic accounting. It doesn't give you heart attacks, but <laughs> at least, well, actually, it might. Um, <laughs> uh, I'd actually be at my firm's HBC event for the day. And, and I've, I've picked on high-performance culture because over the last four years, I have not seen anything that is so close to matching my Christian faith in business, and yet in one key respect is so far from it. And the difference is this. It's the difference between law and grace. Our ethics statements, our codes of conduct, our cultural statements, our push for high-performance culture within today's business community in whatever form it's being pushed, is much closer to law than it is to grace. See, law cannot achieve transformation or empowerment. See, the Bible says that the law, and when we go back to looking at the law here, we're all really talking about the law of Moses, the law that you read in the Old Testament, is holy, righteous and good. Right? There's nothing wrong with the law. I mean, it's pretty easy to establish that as a philosophical principle for any of you invested time in studying philosophy. We know that it's good because if you didn't have it, you wouldn't know what was bad. So the law itself isn't bad. It just tells you, tells you what is right and what is wrong. But the, the law itself simply has the effect for us. Just, I mean, you can pick any law you like. It doesn't even have to be law in the Bible. It has the effect of telling us that we're sinners, that we get it wrong, that we don't do what is right. The effect of a law against speeding is that when you speed and get caught, right, you know you've been speeding. So the law tells you that you're a traffic infringer. Right? If there wasn't a law against it, you wouldn't be or know you were. Through the law, then, we become conscious of sin. We become conscious of what we're getting wrong. We want to do what is right, as in high-performance culture or our ethics statements or our codes of conduct. But actually you can't do it because nothing changed. There was just a law introduced, a rule introduced. You haven't been changed just because there was a new rule. It's a shadow of things to come, the Bible says, when it talks about the law compared to grace. Grace is the opposite of law. Grace says... We all know we break the law. We all know we are guilty, but God forgives us anyway. When we are living under grace rather than under law, the ethical considerations, the cultural considerations, are viewed in a completely different way. For example, we forgive because we were first forgiven. And because we are not trying to do these things in our own strength, but in God's strength, we can do the things that are needed. The Bible says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So there is a difference under grace compared to law because grace not only changes who we are, it transforms us, but it empowers us. When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us because of his mercy. And the result is transformation. High performance culture, an attempt to change the way organisations work together, is inherently limited because it asks for transformation but only gets change. 
changes when I say, I'm not going to work at 7 in the morning anymore, I'm going at 8 o'clock. I had this discussion with my wife recently, got to make a few changes, can't be passionate about working 12 hours a day anymore. Um, you know, heart patients are like that, being five minutes from Jesus causes you to think about things slightly differently. <laughs> right? And none of you think you're remotely that close. But I'm 47. I nearly died from a heart attack three weeks ago. I'm standing here because of the grace of God. And it makes you think differently, talk about formative events. Transformation changes the way you think. So you aren't thinking rule-based because your whole mind now wants to do what is right. It has been transformed by God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will, the Bible says. You were taught to put off your old self, which has been corrupted, and put on a new self created to be like God. So ethics, your priorities in business, the culture in which the business works, all these things are viewed fundamentally differently because your mind has been transformed. You are not trying to follow a series of rules. You are trying to and are empowered to live differently according to the word of God. And the Bible makes it very clear. It gives us two lists. It says the human nature, the natural person you are, works this way. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. And that sounds like a lot of workplaces. Sounds like a lot of relationships. And it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Good things. There is a difference. There's a difference because high performance culture, good as it is, I'm not having a go at it. But I'm saying there is a better way. Good as it is, is me-centred. It tells me I can be the best I want to be. It tells me to transform myself, but I can't. It tells me that I should clear the withholds, clear the issues I have with my workmates. But it doesn't empower me to forgive. It doesn't even mention love. It tells me to trust others. It tells me to celebrate the good times. It tells me, feel valued. Yeah, feel valued. <laughs> well, you feel better yet? I, I... The God-centred way says, love. I've never heard the word love in a discussion of high-performance culture. Hey, you could take PwC so far, but throwing in the love word ain't going to work. It's a secular environment. We aren't trying to do things according to a collective unanimous view that the word of God applies. We love because first God first loved us. We forgive because he forgave us. We rejoice in the Lord always, not just celebrate the victories. We are transformed by God. We trust in God, not in human frailties. And we know that all this applies because God gave his only son Jesus for us. So when we look at ethics in business, when we look at the cultures in which we work, there is a big difference. There's a recognition that all the striving in the world to get it right will not overcome our inherent natures. We can't do it. We can change, we can tweak everything we like, but it doesn't essentially change who we are. But 
Acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour does do that. It transforms us. It changes our lives. We are transformed by God's power and we bear the fruit of the Spirit that I've talked about earlier there. So, real transformation. The ability to be ethical in business, to be excellent in business. See, nobody ever questions whether you're smart enough to do it. We know that just about all of you are capable of going out there and working in business and doing the things that need to be done. But to do them ethically, to do them according to God's principles, requires a transformation of who you are. When we are following Jesus, when we live under his salvation, we will bring to our workplaces a more excellent way. A way of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control. Against those things, there is no law. So excellence in business? Well, following Jesus is a better way. Thank you.